Good morning, Westridge. I'm entirely happy to be here with you today. My privilege, I'm entirely unhappy to do it during these times because I know some of you are probably not leading your best life. When Michael Chase says on Saturday Night Live, I feel like I'm living in the Old Testament, that's when I got worried. So you probably got a lot of questions going on, and I know I've got a lot of questions. And what I hope to do today is not to give you thin hope in these difficult times, but to give you deep hope rooted in a biblical worldview. So some of the questions we might be asking, why is this happening? Um, when is this going to end? Uh, will I get the virus? Will I lose my job? Will I ever get a job? And those are appropriate questions at the appropriate time with the appropriate people. But I'm not a politician, a physician, or a prophet. So I've got a different question for you. It's an old one. It's a really old one. So old, you're going to wonder how it could possibly be relevant to the uncertainty that we're currently facing. It's so old, before it was asked, the whole world was clothing optional. And so here it is. Our first ancestors broke the one and only commandment they'd been given. You probably remember this. They ate from the tree of good and evil. Now, most of you are familiar with this, but let's Let's read a portion of the events that take place in Genesis chapter 3. It goes like this. Immediately the two of them did see what was really going on. They saw themselves naked. They sewed fig leaves together as makeshift clothes for themselves. And when they heard the sound of God strolling in the garden in the evening breeze, the man and his wife hid in the trees, hid from God. And then God asked the first question of the first man. God called to the man, and here, here's our COVID question. Where are you? He said, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid. And God said, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree I told you not to eat from? And the man said, well... You know that woman you gave me as a companion? She gave me some fruit from the tree. And yes, I ate it. And God said to the woman, what's that you've done? Well, the serpent seduced me, she said, and I ate it. And here's our COVID question once again. Where are you? I want to make two brief observations about this well-known creation account in your Hebrew Bible. And the first observation is this. God didn't say, why have you done this? It seems that so many self-help books are consumed with why, not where. I've concluded that the motivation behind an action is not very liberating. Even if I do get to the place where I understand my actions or your actions and it's doubtful that I ever will, that knowledge does not free me from defeating behavior. There will be time to discuss the whys of this event. I just think now is not one of them. The famous Jesuit father, James Martin, recently argued that the mystery of suffering is unanswerable. 
that no explanation suffices for all the diversities of human pain, and therefore what Christians must offer instead of an argument is the person of Jesus, whose ministry of healing both reveals a loving God and shows us where to find God's presence today among people caring for the grieving, the dying, and the sick. That's where I need to be. That's where I think I need to be. Now, I worked for a medical school. And where I found myself was making calls and emails to round up personal protective equipment, PPE. We all know what that means now. Get in my car, drive and pick them up, and deliver them to our campus and to the many clinics that we run in the area. That's where I needed to be. Not overanalyzing the why. Not now. Not at this time. The famous Anglican theologian N.T. Wright offered a similar conclusion. Instead of seeking explanation for our present disaster, we should recover the biblical tradition of lament, an expression of solidarity both with our fellow humans and with God himself, who in the Old Testament grieves for his people's infidelity and in the person of Jesus weeps for Lazarus. I had to Back up on this one just a little bit. That's why he's so much smarter than I am. The Christian tradition, Wright argues, doesn't require us to explain what's happening and why. In fact, it's part of the Christian vocation not to be able to explain and to lament instead. Lamenting is expressing great sorrow or regret, even grief, about something or someone. And the more I thought about this quote from this brilliant theologian, the more I thought how far we have come from a biblical worldview that we've forgotten how to lament without being depressed, how to lament without becoming whining, how to lament without complaining. To lament means that something horrific has likely happened and it moves the person deep within their soul. More than a third of your psalms are laments. And an entire book in your Hebrew Bible, which you may not have yet read, is entitled Lamentations. That's where I need to be. I need to be lamenting with and about those who've suffered loss during these unprecedented times. This is not a time for cocky Christians crowing about cotton candy theology. In our lamentations, we can ask another question, similar but different to the why question. This one is from Dominican father Thomas White. He says, what does it mean that God has permitted or willed temporary conditions in our elite lifestyle of international travel and has grounded them? What does it mean that our consumption is cut to a minimum? Our days are occupied with basic responsibilities toward our family and immediate communities. Our resources and economic hopes are reduced and we're made more dependent upon one another. What does it mean that our nation states suddenly seem less potent and our armies are infected by an invisible contagion they cannot eradicate, and that the most technologically advanced countries 
face the humanity of their limits. We might think none of this tells us anything about ourselves or about God's compassion and justice. But what if we simply seek to pass through all of this in a hasty expectation of a return to normal? Perhaps we're missing the fundamental point of the exercise. He's suggesting that we can do theological reflection and we can do this in community with one another to try to find out where God is in all of this. And that can take us to greater levels of maturity. In T.S. Eliot's Journey of the Magi, the three wise kings, having witnessed the birth of Christ, at the end of a long and difficult journey, return home to find themselves no longer at ease here in the old dispensation. Back in our places, the kings are troubled. They feel they're in the presence of an alien people clutching their gods, yet they left their kingdoms not so long ago. What happened? What transpired to estrange them from all that was once familiar? How can they question the very worlds they shaped? The narrator, one of the kings, is led to speculate on what they have seen in Bethlehem during their journey. I had seen birth and death, but had thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. The birth of Christ is also the death of their pagan worlds. There's no going back to the old dispensation. There's only return in the physical sense. To live as they once lived had become impossible. They no longer see their fellows before them. They see strangers with idols. This short poem poses perhaps the deepest question posed by this pandemic. Can there be any return to the old dispensation? What will return to the new normal mean? Observation number two. The response of Adam to God's question. Now, although Adam told God he was ashamed of what he'd done, he went on to offer a self-defense. He denied his responsibility in the whole affair. He blamed Eve for the mess they were in. He even implicated God. He told God, this woman whom you gave me, gave me the forbidden fruit. In other words, you know, God, it's partly your fault too for giving me the wrong partner. Know any men who are still blaming God and their wife for the fact that they refuse to grow up? Men who still like to hide from their problems. And then God asks Eve, what's going on? And she blames the serpent. Know any women who still like to say, the devil made me do it? I like to say, the first time, the devil made me do it. The second time, I did it all on my own. So let's not spend any more time casting stones at Adam and Eve. They've had a rough enough time of it in history. Let's just hear God ask us, where are you with the backdrop being the pandemic? 
We can say we've drifted out of the garden, sure, but it's not our fault. It's our parents' fault. It's my children's fault. It's my spouse's fault. A theologian said, to sin is humankind's condition. To pretend we're not a sinner is our sin. To hide, to cover up, to deny, to project. Adam thought he was hiding from God when in reality he was hiding from himself and his responsibility. God knew where Adam was all along, of course. But he asked the question because Adam didn't know where he was. Our separation from God is a result of our pretended innocence, not our guilt. Adam was hiding. He was pretending he was somewhere he wasn't, which is why this question is so important. Anybody trying to hide today? T trying to pretend there's someplace they're not? For me, one of the ironies of the virus is that it's created a mask-wearing culture while simultaneously ripping off the masks that have allowed us to pretend we're something we're not, to pretend we're somewhere we're not. I'll quote, an, I'll quote another one of my favorite philosophers, Bruce Springsteen, in one of his most underrated songs, in my opinion. He says, you and me, we were, we were the pretenders. We let it all slip away. In the end, what you don't surrender, well, the world just strips away. Or maybe you're more like Eleanor Rigby, wearing the face that she keeps in a jar by the door. The word hypocrite in your Greek New Testament means stage actor, pretender, dissembler. Think of a hypocrite as a person who pretends to be a certain way, but really acts and believes Something totally opposite. Someone who is a mask wearer. Maybe. If there's anything good that comes out of this pandemic, maybe a few masks will drop. Especially religious mask wearers. Jesus had a lot to say about hypocrites during his ministry. That's for another message. But it takes an enormous energy to hold on to your metaphorical mask while your world is being upended. Hard to keep the mask on when you wake up every morning and the word of the day is the same. Uncertainty. All caps. Mark Lilla, the Columbia University professor, says, we want to feel like we're on a power walk into the future when in fact... We're always just tapping our canes on the pavement in the fog. And that uncertainty has been raised to unprecedented levels today. I don't like that message any better than you do, probably. But it happens to be the biblical worldview. We live by faith. For now... We see through a glass darkly. The history of humanity is one of impatience. Not only do we want knowledge of the future, we want it when we want it. The book of Job condemns as prideful this desire for 
immediate attention. Speaking out of the whirlwind, God makes it clear that he's not a vending machine. He shows his face and he reveals his plan when the time is right, not when the mood strikes us. We must learn to wait upon the Lord, the Bible says. Good luck with that, Job no doubt grumbled. One of the consistent challenges throughout biblical history and church history is that we forget and we have to be reminded over and over again. That's why Gore Vidal called us the United States of Amnesia. 500 years ago, in February of 1519, the Spanish Cortez, Spaniard Cortez, set sail from Cuba to explore and colonize Aztec civilization in the Mexican interior. Within just two years, this Aztec ruler, Montezuma, was dead, and the capital city of Tenochtitlan was captured, and Cortez had claimed the Aztec empire for Spain. Spanish weaponry and tactics played a role, but most of the destruction was wrought by epidemics of European diseases. Although Cortez was a skilled leader, he and his force of perhaps a thousand Spaniards and indigenous aliens would not have been able to have overcome a city of 200,000 inhabitants. He got it in a form of a smallpox epidemic that gradually spread inward from the coast of Mexico and decimated the densely populated capital city by 1520, reducing its population by 40% in a single year. And the final case of smallpox occurred in 1978, almost 500 years after Cortez invaded. If there's any message Christians can carry to a world darkened by a plague, it's that meaninglessness and suffering is the goal of the devil. And bringing meaning out of suffering is the saving work of God. Tap and step. Tap and step. Tap and step. Where are you?